Welcome to this edition of the Gateway Podcast. For more information about our faith community, feel free to visit gatewaychurch.org.nz. Thanks for tuning in and enjoy this message. Hi Gateway, welcome again to Church Online. Thrilled that you can join us once again. Um, In our studies we have been considering the perplexing issue of pain, of suffering, of evil in our world and looking at what the Bible, particularly last week at least anyway, has to say about that. We began by considering other worldviews and what it is that they say about suffering. And one of the things we noticed is that they generally considered suffering to be a result of one particular premise, whether it was balance or illusion or uh, fate or inevitability. When we come, however, to the Bible, we find it much more multidimensional, much more layered and nuanced, and obviously, in my view at least anyway, much more coherent. So last week we considered several perspectives on suffering that are found in the scriptures. Uh, Sometimes people tend to take them and make them the particular principle um, in relating and trying to explain suffering. Whenever they do, however, do that, they take one aspect of a picture, try and make it the whole picture, and as a result, distort it. We looked last week at punishment theodicy, the idea that really when you are sick or when you're in suffering, um, it is a result of sin. We looked also at the issue of soul-making theodicy, that God uses suffering and pain um, as instrument, as an instrument in his hand to make you more Christ-like. I mentioned that both those two views uh, take evil and suffering as being something instrumental in God's purposes. That is, They are God-ordained and God uses them for his purposes. I then moved slightly and talked about suffering being inimical to God's purposes. Rather than being instrumental in his hand, they are an obstruction to what God intends and purposes. And under that that perspective, we looked at um, free will defense, the odyssey. We looked also at the difference between moral evil, which comes as a result of human choice, and natural evil, which which doesn't seem to be related to human choice, but as we talked last week, actually can be attributed to sin um, on a more cosmic level. This week I want to add one more perspective to that of free will defense. Uh, it's another layer that I think needs to be factored into the, into the equation, and it's been called the cosmic conflict framework. The Bible uniformly teaches that God is the creator of all that it is, of all that is, and that he is the sovereign Lord of history, confidently guiding the world toward his desired goal. Because of this clear biblical witness, many Christians have concluded that in order for God to be able to accomplish his goals in creation, everything must fit into his sovereign plan. This idea is expressed in many of the traditional hymns that we sing, the words of which reassure us that he's in absolute total control and that nothing can possibly happen to us without his planning. So you hear people say, well, God has his reasons or everything has its purpose. Augustine put it this way, nothing happens unless omnipotence wills it to happen. John Calvin said, all events are governed by God's secret plan. This is sometimes referred to as God's blueprint. This is a view that, in my view at least anyway, is very, very similar to Islam. 
Such a view makes it exceedingly difficult to reconcile evil and suffering with God's omnipotence and perfect goodness. He may be omnipotent, but I would want to suggest that that doesn't necessarily mean that he's omnicausal. I, I think to suggest that God has higher reasons and secret reasons in allowing 6 million Jews to perish in German concentration camps or 250 million people to perish in a tsunami or hundreds of thousands of people to succumb to COVID-19 pandemic is insulting to those who experience those horrors as well as being insulting to the character of God. Now, while Scripture does, in fact, emphasize God's ultimate authority over the world, it also emphasizes and brings into the equation the fact that there are agents that he has created that now can and do resist his will. Jesus taught us to pray, Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now, the clear implication of this is that it presupposes to a significant extent at least that God's will is not presently being done on earth. And that conflicts significantly with the whole blueprint plan. In Matthew chapter 13, Jesus was uh, telling a parable, and it goes like this. He said, here is another illustration that Jesus used. The kingdom of heaven is like a farmer sowing good seed in his field. But one night as he slept, his enemy came and sowed thistles among the wheat. When the crop began to grow, the thistles grew too. The farmer's men came and told him, Sir, the field where you planted that choice seed is full of thistles. An enemy has done it, he exclaimed. And then in explaining that parable to the disciples in verse 38 and verse 39, Jesus said, The field is the world and the seed represents the people of the kingdom. The thistles are the people belonging to Satan. The enemy who sowed the thistles among the wheat is the devil. The Bible pictures a world that is literally, not metaphorically, literally caught up in a spiritual war between God and Satan. Suffering and pain and evil take on a different meaning when they are viewed against the backdrop of this cosmic war. And I would suggest to you that a theology that ignores the roles and activities of demonic powers ends up blaming God for the evil committed by those powers. In the first chapter of Job, a curtain is pulled back, as it were, and it reveals this cosmic warfare framework. The moral and the natural evil that occurs dramatically impacting Job's family uh, is seen to be the work not of God but of Satan. The New Testament presents us with a clear picture of a spiritual being, a mighty power, a mighty intelligence whose will and energies are bent on the destruction of the cosmos and its inhabitants. John in numerous places calls him the prince or the ruler of this world. And in his epistle, 1 John chapter 5, verse 19 says, We know that we are the children of God and that all the rest of the world around us is under Satan's power and control. Now what we are not talking about here is a thing called dualism. Dualism is the idea that there are equal and opposite powers engaged in a struggle for dominance. A bit like Star Wars, where there's the good side of the force and the dark side of the force, equal and opposite, struggling for, for control. 
The Bible entirely rules out dualism. However, it does picture a titanic struggle that is going on between the kingdom of light and the kingdom of darkness. In the book of Revelation, chapter 12, verses 7 through 9, it says there was war in heaven, and Michael and the angels under his command fought the dragon and his hosts of fallen angels. And the dragon lost the battle and was forced from heaven. This great dragon, the ancient serpent called the devil or Satan, the one deceiving the whole world, was thrown down onto the earth with his army. And this is kind of one of those good news, bad news jokes. The good news is that Satan and his minions are defeated foes. The bad news is that they've been thrown down onto the earth and we live where they've landed. C.S. Lewis said this, I freely admit that real Christianity goes much nearer to dualism than people think. The difference is that Christianity thinks that this dark power was created by God and was created good when created and went wrong. Christianity agrees with dualism that the universe is at war, but it does not think that this is a war between independent powers. It thinks it's a civil war with rebellion and that we are living in a part of the universe occupied by the rebel. So nature in its present state is not as the creator intended it to be any more than humanity in its present state is as the creator intended it to be. In the hands of loving, free agents, nature was intended to be a blessing. However, in the hands of evil free agents, it can become a weapon. G.H. Pember in his book, The Earth's Earliest Ages, says, Let us remember that God made all things good. And when we find something other than God, we avoid hard thoughts of him and say, An enemy has done this. Now the final perspective on suffering that I'd like to consider is sometimes referred to as cruciform theodicy. Technically, it actually doesn't qualify to be considered as a theodicy since it actually doesn't offer a philosophical explanation of suffering and evil and pain. Cruciform theodicy speaks much more to the emotional problem of suffering than it does to the intellectual one. Cruciform theodicy speaks of about what God feels and then does about suffering and pain and evil rather than why they exist in the first place. Now frankly some theologians might raise their eyebrows when I speak of God feeling uh, something about evil and they would probably refer me to a systematic theology course or reference book and point me to the section on God's character which talks about God's impassibility. I don't mean impossibility, the word is impassibility. Now the doctrine of impassibility talks about the denial of divine suffering. It says that God doesn't suffer, God doesn't experience emotions. God as the holy other one is completely different to human beings and does not possess human characteristics. And the doctrine of impassibility developed, uh, was developed in, in, in an attempt to protect God's uh, perfection and transcendence. Quite frankly, it's all a little bit complicated and I don't, uh, I don't profess to understand it all, except that my gut reaction, and I, spe I suspect yours as well, is to turn away from this doctrine of divine impassibility with some sense of revolt. 
if God is really unaffected by the wound of humanity's suffering, by the tears and the torment and the turmoil, how can we possibly relate to him? Jürgen Moltmann in his classic work, The Crucified God, sums it up by saying, a God who cannot suffer cannot love either. God's empathy with humanity's sorrow and suffering, I think, doesn't diminish his divine perfection. I think it reveals it because true love always suffers with its beloved. I don't think God observes our pain from some impassable impassable perch of divine indifference. Rather, he has taken action, he's rolled up his sleeves, and he's got involved with us. Hear the testimony of the writer to the book of Hebrews in regard to Jesus. It says in Hebrews 2.10, to make the author of their salvation perfect through suffering. In chapter 2 verse 18, for in all that he himself hath suffered being tempted. Hebrews chapter 5 verse 8, he learned obedience by the things that he suffered. Here we have God incarnate embracing human suffering. Dorothy Sayers commented, For whatever reason God chose to make man as he is, limited in suffering and subject to sorrow and death, he has the honesty and the courage to take his own medicine. Whatever game he is playing with his creation, he has kept its own rules and played fair. He cannot exact nothing from men that he has not exacted from himself. He has himself gone through the whole of human experience from the trivial trivial irritation of family life and the cramping restrictions of hard work and lack of money to the worst horrors of pain and humiliation, defeat and despair and death. I think in the cross, in the life of Jesus, God suffers from, with and for humanity. It's clear that he suffered from them. One only has to read the scriptures or perhaps watch Mel Gibson's The Passion to realize God suffered from the hands of men. He also suffered in solidarity with us. Let me read you a story. At the end of time, billions of people were seated on a great plain before God's throne. Most shrank back from the brilliant light before them, but some groups near the front talked heatedly, not cringing with shame, but with belligerence. Can God judge us? How can he know about suffering? Snapped a pert young brunette. She ripped open a sleeve to reveal a tattooed number from a Nazi concentration camp. We endured terror, beatings, torture, death. In another group, an Afro-American boy lowered his collar, What about this, he demanded, showing an ugly rope boon, lynched for no crime but being black. Far out across the pain were hundreds of such groups, and each had a complaint against God for the evil and suffering that he had permitted in his world. How lucky God was to live in heaven, where all was sweetness and light, where there was no weeping or fear, no hunger or hatred. What did God know of all that man had been forced to endure in this world? God leads a pretty sheltered life, they said. So each of these groups sent forth a leader, chosen because of what they had suffered. A Jew, a person of colour, a person from Hiroshima, a horribly deformed arthritic, a thalidomide child. In the centre of the vast plain they consulted with each other, and at last they were ready to present their case. It was rather clever. 
Before God could be qualified to be their judge, he must endure what they had endured. Their decision was that God should be sentenced to live on earth as a man. Let him be born a Jew. Let the legitimacy of his birth be questioned. Give him work so difficult that even his family will think that he's out of his mind. Let him be betrayed by his closest friends. Let him face false charges, be tried by a prejudiced jury and convicted by a cowardly judge. Let him be tortured. At last, let him see what it means to be terribly alone. Then let him die so there can be no doubt he died. Let there be a great host of witnesses to verify it. As each leader announced his portion of the sentence, loud murmurs of approval went up from the throng of people assembled. When the last had finished pronouncing sentence, there was a long silence. No one uttered a word. No one moved. For suddenly, all knew that God had already served a sentence. God suffered in solidarity with us. But if suffering in solidarity with us was all that Jesus did, Jesus' death on the cross wouldn't constitute a solution to the problem of evil, simply a restatement of it. Jesus didn't just suffer with us, he suffered for us. He redeemed and transformed us through his own death and resurrection. At the cross, evil and death did its worst at all levels, political, social, cultural, personal, moral, religious and spiritual, all rolled into one. And it was as if Jesus took its full force, paid its full penalty and exhausted it. He drained the cup. In Colossians chapter 2, the J.B. Phillips version reads verse 13 through 15 like this. He has forgiven you all your sins. Christ has utterly wiped out the damning evidence of broken laws and commandments which always hung over our heads and has completely annulled it by nailing it over his head on the cross. And then, having drawn the sting of all the powers raged against us, he exposed them, empty, shattered, and defeated in his final glorious triumphant act. Note that passage there where it says, he drew the sting of all the powers raged or ranged against us. I'm sure that many of you are aware, but if a honeybee stings a human being, they have the capacity only to do it once and then they die. Now the reason for this is they possess um, a barbed stinger called an ovipositor. When the honeybee sting goes into the human's skin, the barbed sting gets lodged. And as the honeybee attempts to pull it out, it tears its abdomen. And as a result of that abdominal tear, the bee dies. I suspect it's something akin to this that Colossians is referring to. Jesus drew the barbed sting of satanic power and death. And through death, cancelled death's ability to impact us any further. As the sting was withdrawn, as it were, it destroyed death. That's why in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 54, Paul says, Oh, death, where is your sting? That sting was deposited into and then lodged in the very person of Jesus so that darkness no longer has the capacity to sting you and I. Having provided propitiation for the sin of mankind through his blood and having defeated demonic 
principalities and powers through his death. The resurrection then was God's first act of new creation after judgment had fallen on the evil of the old. We now live in the tension of the already and not yet of God's purposes. Already new creation has begun, and you and I are illustrations of that, but it has not yet come in its fullness. I've told this story before, but I always love to tell it because it always amuses me. But a little girl was in a, a Sunday school class, and the Sunday school teacher asked the children, what were the first words that Jesus spoke to his disciples after he rose from the dead? And the little girl put her hand up, and when asked what those words might be, she rose to her feet and went, ta-da! In a sense, when Paul says, any man who is in Christ is a new creation, that is God's ta-da. You know, that passage actually doesn't say, if any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. What it says, if any man is in Christ, new creation, it's begun. Ta-da! And we, you and I, as believers, we are proof that the new creation has begun. Now, admittedly, it's not here yet in its fullness. And in the meantime, suffering remains. Pain remains. Evil remains. But the beginning of new creation, it's, it's afoot. It's, un, it's underway. While we do still suffer and endure pain, God does not stand aloof from it. He's in the midst of it with us. You know, God's answer ultimately to suffering and pain is not a watertight philosophical argument. It is a person. Not an abstract idea, but a personal presence. And when you're going through difficulty, he promises that in the midst of it, he will be there. Yes, he can transform it into Christ-likeness, not because that evil is instrumental in his purposes. In fact, it is inimical to his purposes, but in his omnipotence and great love, he has the ability to take even what he did not intend and craft it in a way so that it becomes beneficial for you and I. And all things, though they may not necessarily have come from his hands, nevertheless, all things work together for the good of those that love him and are called according to his purposes. So are you broken? He was broken for you. Are you despised? He was despised and rejected for you. Do you cry? He understands. He was a man of sorrow acquainted with grief. Have you been cruelly betrayed? He also was betrayed. He knows your difficulty. He knows your suffering. He has done all that is possible to both provide redemption and transformation of the pain and yet be in it with you as you go through it. A friend of mine was telling me about a very tragic moment that he endured. He lost a daughter. And in the pain and the grief of that loss, one time he cried out to God in prayer and he said, God, where were you? I would have died for my daughter. Where were you in the midst of this? And he told me how quietly God whispered into his heart, you say that you might have died for your daughter. I already did. I already have. 
God is not aloof. He's not impassable on some divine perch of complete indifference to us. He has rolled up his sleeves. He has got involved. He's got himself bloodied so that ultimately he can provide complete transformation for that pain. And yet, while it happens, the already and not yet, he is in the midst of it with us. You know, the point of philosophy, the point of theodicy, is not to get God off the hook. The Christian God came to earth and put himself on the hook of human suffering so that he might identify in solidarity with us and yet he might endure death for us, redeeming us and ultimately not just redeeming us but the whole planet. Remember Isaac Watts' words in that classic hymn, As far as the curse is found. And God will ultimately redeem not just people, but the planet. You know, in Romans chapter 8, in the J.B. Phillips version, it said that creation stands on tiptoe, waiting for the redemption of the people of God, because creation somehow inherently knows that in the redemption of people, it also will be redeemed. And there will be a new heavens and a new earth that doesn't have weeping, and that doesn't have pain, and that doesn't have sorrow. You know what I suspect, having reached the end of our study into, if I were God, I would do away with suffering and pain. You might be thinking, well, that was a 64 cent answer to a 64 million dollar questions. And Don, quite frankly, it leaves me with as many questions as it does provide answers. Well, I did warn you at the beginning of the study that would be the nature of it. I think anyone who comes away from studying this topic with definite and dogmatic answers simply hasn't understood the questions. We come away from a study like this with a profound sense of frailty and humility, knowing that our best reflections are simply dust. One of my favorite authors, Frederick Beekner, puts it in an amusing but very accurate way. He says, theology is the study of God and God's ways. For all we know, dung beetles might study us and our ways and call it humanology. If so, we would probably be more touched and amused than irritated. One hopes that God feels likewise. And after our consideration of this subject, a very, very brief one, I might add, I do hope that God feels more amused than irritated. God bless you guys. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for listening. We hope it was an encouragement to you. Again, check out gatewaychurch.org.nz to find out what's going on within our church.